Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live.
Okay, let's go to page number four of the traditional worship music songbook, page number four. This is from the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 23. <laughs> Forever. 
number 11. Page 11. Service for the King, our Maiden, and I. Let's sing more close to Him, He will give me life. Make snares may vex my soul, turn my thoughts aside. But my Lord goes ahead, leads forever. I want to see him, there to see forever of his failing grace. On the streets of glory, let me with my voice. Years all past, home and past, ever to enjoy. As I travel through the land, Calvary to the crimson flow. The arrows pierce my soul from without within. Let my Lord lead me on to me on my skin. Want to see him look upon his face. There to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory and he lift my Lord. Thank you. 
One more song from the song book. I'm going to go back to the traditional worship music song book. And page number nine. Page number nine. In this place, there is joy in every heart and a smile every face. It's all right, all right, all right, all right. It's all right to praise the Lord. It's all right, all right, all right, all right. We're His children and delight to praise the Lord. Children and delight 
praise the Lord, cause it's all right. All right. It's all right. It's all right to praise the Lord. It's all right. It's all right. We're his children and we like. Praise the Lord, cause it's all right. It's all right. All right. It's all right to praise the Lord. It's all right. It's all right. We're His children and we like to praise the Lord, cause it's all right. We're his children and we like to praise the Lord because it's all right. Praise God. Okay, let's uh, go in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all these songs. Thank you for the lessons of these songs. Thank you, Lord, for celebration and joy and music and dance for these gifts that you have given mankind to worship you with, to celebrate, to express our feelings and emotions. We thank you, Lord, for forms of worship. We thank you, Lord, for joy and celebration. Thank you, Father, for these seven days that we have been enjoying and a day yet to go, an eighth day. We thank you, Lord, that we're not like the other people, that all of their days are only one day, but we have a seven and even an eight-day fiesta uh, of celebration, of uh, honoring and respecting you and worshiping you and thinking upon you a special time of year that separates us from the rest of the world. We praise and worship your holy name, and we thank you for this seventh day of the Fiesta of Tabernacles. We ask you, Lord, to help us on these last two days, today and tomorrow, to think about how you left your home in heaven and even humbled your own self, even though that you are the almighty God, that you put yourself in the flesh and had at times, dirty feet, dirty fingernails, dirty hair, and sweat. And people mocked you and laughed at you and ridiculed you and did not believe you, persecuted you, and called you all kinds of evil names. Even though you are the Father and the Almighty God, and you did not strike them dead because that you have patience and long-suffering and love and a plan, a plan that must be fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And these days, picture your plan and teach us your plan. We need to know your plan, understand your plan, so that we too can have that same patience, and that same peace and comfort that you had when you walked on earth as a man, even though people were against you and they did not accept you even as they do not accept us. You was different and peculiar and strange 
to the people of the world. And we are now your hands and your feet here on this earth as pilgrims and strangers among the people. We are the kingdom of God. We thank you, Lord, for these lessons that we are learning, that we have these opportunities to learn and to grow in you, to embrace your long-suffering, your love, your peace, your comfort. Even when the storm raged, when you was in the bottom of the ship and all those macho, professional fishermen were up there on the ship going crazy, scared, shaking in their boots. But you was asleep in the midst of the storm when the ship was rocking and the waves was roaring and it was a horrible and mean tempest. But you slept like a baby until the fearful men woke you up and disturbed your sleep. And you said, are you of little faith? We don't want to be of little faith like those men were. We want to be the army of the Lord, not shaking in our boots, riding on white horses, following you to come down and conquer all evil and all darkness, to even throw Satan himself in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Father, today we're talking about the second resurrection and that hundred years after the millennium. And we need to understand these basic elementary school things so that we can become the army of the Lord and teach others and teach others easily to know exactly which scriptures to give them, that they be engraved in our hearts and in our minds, that your law and your word be engraved in our hearts and in our minds, that we could easily spring forth with the tongue the word of God, that we can exercise the full armor of God, not just the mind frame, not just the helmet of salvation, but also the breastplate of righteousness, the loins grid about with truth, the feet shone with the gospel peace of Jesus Christ, and the sharp two-edged sword of the word of God. And also to be filled with the Holy Ghost of Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, glorified in Jesus Christ. Baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost, saved, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and having the Father's name in our foreheads, the name of Jesus covered under the blood of Jesus, and living a lifestyle 24-7 for you, Father. Regardless of how peculiar it may be to everyone else, regardless of what persecutions come our way, regardless of words and stones and sticks that come our way, that we would not be moved, that we be firmly rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, not in Jewish traditions, not in Jewish customs, not in man's traditions, not in pagan traditions, not in falsehood and false teachings, and not in fear, but in Jesus Christ. Not in Hebrew roots, not in websites, but in Jesus Christ. Your word, Lord, your word. Help us to return to the scriptures. We ask, Lord, for your special help in this service today and that you be glorified in all of it. Help us to understand, Lord. Give us the Holy Ghost that we may understand. 
Fill us up more, Lord. Pour your spirit upon us, even as you said you would in Joel 2, we accept. We accept the infilling of the Holy Ghost in our minds and in our hearts. Open our ears and our eyes spiritually that we may see and hear and understand spiritual things that the carnal cannot understand, but the spiritual can. Anoint our hearing and our receiving. Fill our cup, Lord, with your spirit. Fill this temple with your spirit. Fill it with fire and smoke spiritually to burn out all the sins and consume every wicked thing in us. Consume the wicked thoughts. Consume the blasphemous thoughts, the negative thoughts, and the fear. Consume loneliness, lonely feelings. Consume fear. Consume depression and anxiety. Consume every wicked thing, dark thing, and unhealthy thing. And help us, Lord, to grow up and be totally mature, even to the full statue of Jesus Christ, our example the Son of Man and the Son of God, our Lord, our Savior, our refuge, our shepherd. You are sufficient for us, Lord. You are our shepherd and our everything. You are sufficient for us, Lord. If we have no husband, if we have no wife, if we have no son, if we have no daughter, if we have no parents, if we have no grandparents, if we have no friend, if we have no house, no money or land, that you are sufficient for us, Father. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You lead us beside still, quiet waters, gentle waters, not raging floods. Cleanse us, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Touch this service, Lord, to speak and put your words in my mouth and in our ears and in our hearts as never before. Pour it out, Father, upon us that we may receive and accept your glory be your body upon this earth. And not only your body, but your speaking word upon this earth, your church. In the name of Jesus Christ, so be it. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord Jesus. Praise God. Okay, we're going to be starting here in, I believe, Leviticus 23 here in a minute. Leviticus 23, if anybody would like to go ahead and start turning there. Leviticus 23, of course, this is the chapter, the main chapter of the Holy Days. There's a lot of different places in the scripture that talks about the Holy Days, but this is like the best summarization where you can get all the Holy Days all in one chapter, very well summarized and and everything. So Leviticus 23 needs to come engraved in our memory that we can immediately remember Leviticus 23 any time that we're speaking or teaching about the holy days, including even the seventh day as well. For the record, today's date in the Roman Catholic calendar is October the 22nd, October 22nd, 2016 A.D., in the year of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for God's created calendar, God's true calendar, it is the 21st day of the seventh month. 21st day of the seventh month, which automatically means that this is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
seventh day to feed the tabernacles. Now, the last service we had, or maybe the one before that, I explained how the Feast of Tabernacles represents the millennium, the first thousand years that Jesus would be on the earth. We explained uh, uh, what, were, what life would be like, that there would still be flesh and blood human beings that survived the Great Tribulation. There'll still be rebellion and sin, but yet there'll be the government of God and the just government of God. They'll be burying the dead and burning the weapons and and people will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles uh, every year in Jerusalem. And people all over the earth will be going up to Jerusalem, and it will be the law. It will be a requirement for even the Egyptians and all the Gentile nations and all nations and all people that will be on the earth at that time. But today we're going to focus on another meaning of the Fiesta of Tabernacles. Not only does it picture the millennium, but it also pictures the second resurrection, the second resurrection. And the second resurrection and the 100-year lifetime, the 100-year chance that people, last chance that people are going to have to repent and accept Jesus Christ and the truth. So it represents the 1,000 years, but also the 100 years and the second resurrection. Um, this is uh, the autumn season, fall, autumn season, late season festival. You've got your early spring uh, festivals, uh, Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread occurs in the spring. Then we have Pentecost, which is usually uh, in June, uh, sort of summer-like. And, um, and then your fall festivals, uh, Feast of Trumpets and Day of Atonement and Tabernacles and Last Great Day in the fall. Uh, the We're going to start, we're going to go, we're going to backtrack with going back to some of the spring holy days. Because the spring holy days we have to understand first before we can understand how and why that the Feast of Tabernacles represents the second resurrection. We have to first understand that the spring holy days, especially Pentecost in June, Pentecost represents the first resurrection. Another name for Pentecost is uh, the Festival of First Fruits. So Pentecost, the Festival of First Fruits, or the Fiesta of First Fruits, represents the first resurrection. That's why it's called first fruits. So we have to understand that first before we can understand why the fall holy days represent the second resurrection. So in Leviticus 23, starting in verse 4, Leviticus 23, verse 4, these are the appointed times of G. It says here, the Lord, but in the oldest fragments and manuscripts we have, it didn't have the word be that's been inserted. It didn't have the word Lord that's been inserted. 
So it had G, J-E-H, but H is silent. So these were the appointed times of G, as in Jesus. Holy convocations, meaning assemblies, gatherings, worship service, which you shall proclaim at the times, and that word times can be translated seasons, at the times or the seasons appointed for them. Verse 5, in the first month, not Roman calendar, not January, but God's calendar, which is March or April, first month, on the 14th day of that month, at, it should say, um, um, sunset, it says twilight here, it should say sunset, is the Lord's, or G's, Passover. Now, it's not saying that Passover starts at sunset. It doesn't say the word start. It says at sunset is Jesus' Passover, meaning that is when you take the communion. Because it doesn't say Passover day. So it's not saying the day starts at sunset. It's talking about the meal. It's talking about the communion. Uh, for your notes, we won't turn there right now, but for your notes, you can compare that verse to confirm that it should say sunset and that it's talking about the meal. Uh, the confirmation verse is, for your notes, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 6. Deuteronomy 16, verse 6. Then in verse 6 here in Leviticus, verse 6, then on the 15th, which is the next day, the 15th of the same month, there is the feast or festival, fiesta, of unleavened bread, 2G, for seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread. So it's a fast, but it's not a total fast. You're only fasting from leavened bread, which means you're fasting from anything that has baking soda, yeast, and not only you're fasting from the leavening, but you're also eating unleavening bread, bread without baking soda and yeast, which represents the removal of sin, because leavening is symbolism for sin. So that's a new covenant, uh, definitely a new covenant uh, thing. We know Passover in verse 5, the communion represents the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and we are partaking in the communion to say, I accept the body and blood of Jesus Christ for salvation of my soul. So Passover is the death of Jesus, that we are accepting his Passover, that he is the Passover lamb, that he is salvation for us. And then the seven days of unleavened bread symbolizes the continual process for the rest of our life of the removal of sin. So first we have to accept Jesus and his blood and his sacrifice. Then we have to work on our sins for the rest of our lives, represented by the seven days. Seven is the number of completeness, which means for the rest of our lives, we are still working on removing the leavening from our lives. 
Verse 7 says, On the first day of those seven days, you shall have a holy convocation, a gathering together, a worship service, and you shall not do any laborious work. So it's a rest day. Now, that's not talking about Passover. It's talking about the seven days of unleavened bread. Passover Passover itself is not a rest day. You can actually go to work on Passover, but you've got to keep communion at sunset and in foot worship. But the first day of unleavened bread, the day after Passover, is a rest day. See, the Bible is very, very, very detailed, very specific. Very specific. Um... Passover is not a rest day. It doesn't say so. So we don't keep it as a rest day. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a rest day. It says so. Therefore, we keep it that way. So we don't add to it or take away from it. Verse 8, But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to G. Now, that's what they had to do then. They had to kill an animal and burn it and sacrifice it to this invisible God. But we know from the New Testament that Jesus told Paul, don't do this anymore, that you don't, should not, sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus replaced that. Jesus became the symbolism of the Lamb, a one-time eternal sacrifice. And yet, there are some Hebrew roots groups and Jews, same thing, that are teaching we still still yet should do the sacrifices. But Paul was very, very, very clear that Jesus had instructed him that he is the last and eternal sacrifice. So now, according to the Bible, our prayers are the offerings by fire. Because the Bible says in more than one place that our prayers ascend as smoke, as an offering unto the Lord. So our prayers become a fulfillment of this because we are not old covenant people. We are new covenant. We are the new covenant church of Jesus Christ. And so today we still make offerings by fire through prayer for seven days, for the days of unleavened bread, while we're fasting from the regular bread. And it says on the seventh day is a holy convocation, a a worship service, and you should not do any laborious work, meaning you rest, but you can still cook, you can still wash your dishes. He doesn't expect us to be unsanitary and uh, the Jews used to uh, prohibit even the gathering of sticks for your fire, but that was just uh, physical symbolisms. And we don't do we do some physical symbolisms because Jesus told us to do the communion and the foot washing. But this other physical symbolism of don't even gather sticks on the seventh day or on the holy days. It's just old covenant stuff. And we have to mature in Jesus Christ and realize you can heal on the seventh day. 
you can heal, you can good, do good works, you can feed yourself. You don't have to starve yourself, you know, unless it's the Day of Atonement. So then verse 9, then Jesus spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, and we're the sons of Israel now, spiritually, when you enter the land, which I'm going to give you, which is America now, back then it was Canaan, but now it's America, or even Australia, or wherever you live, any nation on earth, that God has gave us that land. So we, we think spiritually, not physically. It don't have to be Israel now. It don't have to be a physical temple now. It don't have to be the land of Canaan now. But wherever we live, God has given it to us. You know, because the Bible says in the book of Acts that he has determined our habitation, where we live. So I'm going to give to you that you reap its harvest. I really encourage you to underline the word harvest there because that is what we're talking about today, the first harvest and the second harvest of souls. All this represents the harvest of souls salvation. This is God's salvational plan. By keeping the holy days, we learn God's salvational plan. Now, Jesus many, many times used the symbolism of vineyards, harvests, and the same was true in Leviticus 23. These harvests was a symbolism for resurrection of souls. And so I'm going to give it this land to you and reap its harvest. Then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits, representing the first resurrection. The Bible says that we are the first fruits because that we are new covenant people, that we're going to rise first in the first resurrection. So we're seeing here uh, the first resurrection symbolized. And it says, uh, verse 11, you shall wave the sheaf before G for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, what it's saying here is when you're in those seven days of unleavened bread, starting on Sunday, the day after the seventh day Sabbath within that week, you start counting 50 days. It's going to tell us that here in a minute. But on the day after the seventh day Sabbath, you, what they used to do, what they were instructed to do for Old Covenant times was to wave some wheat in the air, some barley, barley grain. Again, we are the wheat, we are the first fruits, we are the harvest, we are the vineyard of the Lord, we are the called out ones of the Lord. And that bread, that wheat, that sheaf that was waved up into the sky represented the lifting up of the church at the seventh trumpet. We don't have to go and cut wheat or barley and wave it up in the air anymore because that was just a physical, carnal thing that represented a spiritual thing. Verse 12. Now on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb so we see that it's directly connected to a physical animal sacrifice. We don't do animal sacrifices no more, therefore we don't do the sheaf offering anymore either. They are connected. And you offer a male lamb one year old without defect, 
for a burnt offering to the Lord, and its grain offering shall be two-tenths of the ephraim, a fine flour mixed with oil, and an offering by fire to the Lord for smoothing aroma, which the Bible says all prayers is an aroma, and its drink offering. So they would have flour and alcohol that they would lay out on the altar and pour it out to the Lord, and the Lord would consume it with fire uh, and show himself that he is God. And it says a fourth of a hen of wine. So God did consume wine. Jesus did. This is Jesus. When he came down as a far upon the altar to consume this wine and this bread, that was Jesus consuming the wine and the bread. So then Jesus came and took the wine and the bread and said, this is my body and my blood. Ain't that wild? That's wild. And he told us to take the wine and the bread. You see. But back then, that wine and that bread was only for God. And the high priest would uh, partake of some wine during some, I don't know about this one, but on some of the holy days, uh, the priest would take some of the bread or some of the animals for himself. Uh, that gets complicated, and it's really not important to 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 know all the specifics. We don't have to know all the specifics, but something very very basic, something very basic that is truly so very edifying, is that Jesus came down in a in fire and consumed the bread and the wine. Then told us that we now can take the bread and the wine because we are all now priests of the Lord. Verse 14, until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread uh, nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statue, which which does not mean forever. The correct translation of perpetual should be long term. And that's the way it's going to be in the uh, Alpha and Omega Bible, it will be translated as long-term, as a long-term statue or long-term ordinance. Uh, word perpetual in uh, Hebrew does not mean forever, but rather long-term until Jesus came to replace it. And so it should be long-term ordinance or statue throughout your generations and all your dwelling places until Jesus came. Verse 15, and starting from that Sunday, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheep for the wave offering, there should be seven complete Sabbaths, or seven complete weeks, which is 49 days, and then the next day would be the 50th day. Verse 16, you should count 50 days to the day after the seventh day. So it's always going to, Pentecost means 50th, and it will always be on a Sunday regardless of the day of month or regardless of what month it is, this is the only holy day, Pentecost, is the only holy day that does not tell you that it has to be in a certain month or on a certain day of the month. For example, Pentecost is 14th day of the first month. Peace and Unleavened Bread is 15th day of that first month up to the 21st day of that first month. Uh, Feast of uh, Trumpets is first day of the seventh month. 
but and so on and so on with all the other holy days. But Pentecost is always the 50th day after the Sabbath that occurs during the seven days of unleavened bread. So again, it's the 50th day, which will always be a Sunday, 50th day after the the seventh day Sabbath that occurs during the unleavened bread days. So that's how you calculate that. And again, Pentecost means 50. So that's why we call it Pentecost, because that's the Greek word, or actually Paleo-Hebrew word, for 50 is Pentecost. So it says, verse 16, you should count 50 days to the day after the Sabbath, and then you present a new grain offering to the Lord. So these 50 days started by offering a grain offering and ended with offering a grain offering. Verse 17, you shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering, which means it would be waved up in the air representing a resurrection, made of two-tenths of an ephraim, which means a measurement, and there shall be of a fine flour, not just any, any flour, but a fine flour, baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord, again representing the first resurrection. All along with the bread, you should present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect because Jesus was without defect, Jesus without sin, and a bull of the herd and two rams, and they are to be a burnt offering to G with their drink offering and their uh, grain offering and drink offering, an offering by fire of a smooth and aroma to G. Verse 19, you shall also offer one male goat. So there are all kinds of animals here. Uh, and, and if people think we're supposed to still do this, then you have to basically buy a herd of animals and kill and slaughter a bunch of animals. And that would just be a waste because God is not going to come down and consume it no more like he used to. And 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 you're not going to have a high priest in the flesh of a man that's going to be consuming it for you, setting it on fire. So it just would be ridiculous to think that we still have to do this. Uh, but let's just keep reading because we're going to get some new covenant edification again here in a minute. Verse 19, you shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Verse 20, the priest shall then wave them in the air with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before G. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. So that's saying in the new covenant symbolism, that we're being lifted up in the air as an offering to Jesus that we are to be holy unto the Lord. Verse 21, on this same day, the 50th day of Pentecost, you should make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy gathering. You should do no labor's work. Pentecost is a rest day. It is to be a perpetual statue, meaning long term, uh, in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. Even with Pentecost, it's not forever and ever and ever. Because when we get to paradise, when we get to new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, there will no longer be a first month, a second month, a third month, or even a seventh day of the week. Because every day and every night will be bright. We're going to be living in the glory of the Lord. And there will no longer be separation of day and night and weeks and months. So you won't be able to count 50 days no more. So even with Pentecost, it's not forever. 
it's long term until new heaven and new earth. Um, so what we're learning here, even though I don't say it right out that this represents the first resurrection, but if you compare it to New Testament verses, it becomes clear. And we're going to look at some New Testament verses. But first, I encourage you in verse 20 to underline the word first fruits. First fruits. So Pentecost is called also called the fiesta of first fruits. It's also called the fiesta of weeks because you're counting seven weeks. So it's also called the festival of weeks. Before we go to New Testament, let's just look at a couple other verses in the Old Testament. Let's turn to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verse 16. Verse 16, Exodus 23, verse 16. Also, you should observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits. That's Pentecost. And notice it, it calls it the harvest of the first fruits, meaning a resurrection, a receiving from the ground, a receiving of the vineyard, receiving of the fruit of the vineyard. Representing the harvest of the first resurrection, the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field, just like we sow the seed of the word of God in the field. Also, the feast of ingathering. That is another word for the fiesta of tabernacles is the feast of ingathering. Reason for that is because both Pentecost and tabernacles are directly related in that the first one represents the first fruits, first harvest, spring harvest, first resurrection, and then the fall one, the autumn festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, is the second harvest, the second resurrection. And it's called Feast of Ingathering is because that is the last chance for harvest, the last chance for souls to be harvested, a last resurrection, a last harvest, in gathering. It's gathering what you've got left of the harvest. It's the finish of the harvest. It's the gathering of all the people that's ever lived. It's the gathering of all the people that's ever lived since Adam and Eve, that if they were not harvested in the first resurrection, then they will be gathered in the second resurrection. And notice it says, the fiesta of the ingathering at the end of the year, which represents at the end of time when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. And it says three times a year all of your males will appear before the Lord your God because if you go back to verse 14, three times a year you shall celebrate a fiesta to me 
You should observe the fiesta of unleavened bread. For seven days, you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Bid, which is the first month, March, April, and it shall come as you did when you come out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And then the second one is the um, Pentecost, and the third one is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you can't take this verse all by itself because when you take the whole Bible, especially Leviticus 23, we know that there are much more than these three. You've got Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, and Last Great Day. So we have seven commanded holy days, not counting Perm and Hanukkah because they're not commanded. We can keep them, but they're not commanded. But we have seven commanded holy days, not three. But it just focuses in on these three here. And the reason it focuses in on the particular three is because these three are pilgrimages. Pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is when you are commanded to actually travel, when you are commanded to actually leave your home and travel, to go camping or motel or something like that. So it's not just a fiesta of tabernacles. But at that time, it was only the men were, because it says all the males, verse 17, three times a year all your males will appear before the Lord. That was because at that time, only the men were allowed to, like, uh, be at the front of the synagogue, the front of a building, so forth, and and, and uh, so forth. So in the New Covenant situation, uh, women have an equal chance to learn and hear and be involved in the services, stuff like that, because we know that Paul spoke of the uh, deaconess. Uh, he mentioned several, many different women that was involved in the ministry, just as long as they're not pastors, just as long as they are not asserting themselves over the pastor and so forth. So now women have a part in it. So you can't take one verse by itself. So now women, too, can do this, the Feast of Tabernacles and all three of these. So there are some groups today in our modern time there are some groups, not many, but there are some groups that do go camping for eight days in the spring for the unleavened bread. Um, the thing is, that is debatable. Uh, I haven't done that. I haven't hosted one. I haven't even done it myself to go camping for those days. For one thing... It's very limited in the instruction to do that, and it doesn't say go dwell in booths. It just says come before. Well, we come before him every seventh day without dwelling in a temporary booth. It doesn't say to dwell in a temporary booth. The fiesta of tabernacles is very, very, very specific. Come and dwell in temporary booths, tents, hotels, campers for these days. It doesn't use all that wording for the other two pilgrimage. But if we're going to do a pilgrimage, then you've got to be in a temporary booth because you're you're leaving your home, you're leaving your house. Uh, so I'm going to leave that open to the Lord. 
for Father instruction, what we should do, what we should not do, and we're coming up to the Great Tribulation now. I mean, we're coming up to the Great Tribulation very, very, very quick, so we're not going to be able to go to Virginia Beach and California and, and Tennessee and different states and different towns much longer. So when it comes, when we are in the wilderness, or if we're in the same place that we live now during the Great Tribulation, we're not going to be able to do any of these pilgrimages, even if we are required to. And God understands that. God doesn't expect us to try to sneak through the army and get around the army to sneak to get into another town just so that we can take a pilgrimage, you know. Uh, we have to use common sense and realize that God is understanding of our situations. So in our day and time of this particular day of October 2016, I just really believe it doesn't matter anymore. It might have mattered two years ago, but in the situation we live in right now, it doesn't matter whether we camp for eight days in the spring or not because we just don't have time to do that. The most important thing is is that we have worship services on these days, regardless of where we are. If we're in the woods or a cave or wherever we are, that we have worship services because we can do that. We can do that. And um, Now, we appear before the Lord at all seven commanded holy days, but these three are set apart as uh, times when that uh, offering would be required. Uh, it says, uh, not, let's see, not appear before me empty hand in verse 15. Verse 15, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of bid. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before empty handed. So, what is special about these three is different from the other four holy days, is the other four holy days did not command a special tithe or a special offering, whereas these three commanded a special offering. I've not taught that a whole lot because I'm not after the money. Uh, but if we go by every detail, uh, and if we had much more time left, because nobody's going to have an income by next year or next two years. But if we still had a lot of time left, then perhaps we could start teaching that part of it as well, that there would be a special offering uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles and Unleavened Bread and Pentecost to help out with the expenses. Um, so my real point in bringing this up is that there is an in-gathering at the end of the year, verse 16 that there's a harvest. All of these are harvest festivals. And all the harvests represent a spring resurrection, a fall resurrection, meaning the first and second resurrection. That is really my point. And then we go to chapter 34. Chapter 34, verse 22. Because we're most we're more concerned with the spiritual thing. We're concerned about resurrection rather than 
money and goats and blood of animals. We are concerned with the resurrection and salvation. In chapter 34, verse 22, 34-22, you shall celebrate the fiesta of weeks. That's Pentecost, seven weeks. That is the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the fiesta of end gathering at the end of the year, three times a year and so forth. So, again, it's harvest. It's resurrection. Now let's go to the New Testament, Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Romans 8, verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. We are the first fruits. And having the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we are the first ones to receive the Holy Ghost. The people of old covenant times, the people of Moses' time, did not receive the Holy Ghost. That's impossible because he had not died yet. The Holy Ghost is the living spirit or living ghost of one that died, but is still alive. So they did not have the first fruits of the Holy Ghost. We had the first fruits of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost had never been poured out before uh, the resurrection. But after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples and he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That was the first time. That was before Acts, but it was after the death and resurrection. We having those first fruits of the Holy Ghost. That should say ghost there, of the Holy Ghost. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, redemption of our body, which means to lose our flesh. We're waiting for the resurrection because we have this measure of the wheat, the bread and body and blood of Jesus Christ. Just as it said to do a certain measure of the wheat and a certain measure of the wine, we, when we first get saved, we receive a certain measure. Then as we continue to receive the word, the living word, into our mind, into our heart, as we read the Bible more and more, as we fast more and more, as we obey more and more, and get the bad out and bring the good in, we get even a greater measure of the Holy Ghost. He starts, it's like water. He gives us a little water at first, then more water, more water, more water in us, more of his spirit in us. As we stay with him, the longer we stay with him, we get more of his spirit, of his ghost. 
So we are the first fruits. Uh, so that directly relates what we've been reading about Pentecost as a new covenant time. Then look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, verse 15, I mean, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. One Corinthians fifteen verse twenty. Fifteen verse twenty says that now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Talking about in the grave, the people that they say is dead. Christ is the first fruit of even us. He is the first of the first fruits. Um, so that means he is the first to be resurrected from the dead as far as one that is still alive. Now, Jesus rose some people from the dead, like Lazarus, and even Elijah rose some people from the dead. But those people that were rose from the dead are not still alive. They are asleep again. But Jesus is the first one that rose from the dead that is still alive to this day. Therefore, he is called the first of the first fruits. I believe that's in Scripture somewhere. But right here it says he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then we, we saw over in we saw in Romans eight where Paul said we are the first fruits, talking to the new covenant church. Jesus first rose from the dead, and now us we're going to rise from the dead. We are first fruits. And remember, when it says first fruits, it means harvest, that we are going to rise, hopefully, in the first harvest, the first resurrection of souls from the soul, from the ground. Verse 21, uh, verse, for since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, saying, Jesus brought forth a resurrection. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive. Every person that has ever died is going to be resurrected. And only by the Spirit of God, only by the Spirit of Christ, can every person that has ever lived eventually be resurrected, sooner or later, whether it might be in the first resurrection or second resurrection, everybody that has ever lived will be made alive. Now, in Adam, all die, right? Now, it says here in verse 22, in Adam all die. Does that include the righteous and the wicked both? Yes. The righteous and the wicked both all die. Everybody dies. Everybody. Except for those who are alive when he comes. So if it means everybody die with Adam, then doesn't it mean everybody will live when it talks about Christ? Not that they will all be saved but that they will live, that they will be risen from the dead. And then it says in verse 23, but each in his own order, 
Wow. That's amazing. Because not everybody rises at the same time, right? It's impossible for everybody to rise at the same time, even though Babylon teaches that. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and remember, we are the body of Christ. Christ, the first fruits, is referring to us according to Romans 8, verse 23. And after that, those who are Christ's at his coming, which means Christ first and then us at his coming. Now, when it says at his coming, it's, it's grouping the entire 41 and a half day, 45 day wrath together with the very day that we come down with them. It's, it's grouping all the way from the blowing of the seventh trumpet to the day he comes back at the day of battle Armageddon, those 45 days, into one statement. So don't let this fool you to think that we are rising from the dead at the battle of Armageddon because that's impossible because we come down with him at the battle of Armageddon. And before we come down with him at the battle of Armageddon, we've already partaken in the marriage supper, right? Revelation 19. So Revelation 19 shows we're in heaven, we're praising him, we're worshiping him, we take partake in the marriage supper, we receive white horses, we receive white robes, and we come down with them. So it's impossible for us to be risen from the dead on the day of his coming, even though that's what it says. Because it's grouping all the way from the seventh trumpet, when we're called up, all the way through the 45 days to the last 45 days, uh, the very day of his return is grouping it into one sentence. It's a summation. It's like a vibration. Now then notice verse 24. Then comes the end. And remember where it said in the Old Testament that at the end of the year you keep the feast of in gathering. So verse 24, then comes the end talking about the end of the thousand years, when he hands over the kingdom to God, Father, when he abolished all rule and all authority and power, meaning when he destroys Satan and all fallen angels in the lake of fire, because all rule, all authority and power would include Satan, right? If it's all rule, all authority, and all power, that includes every wicked king and every wicked spirit, every fallen angel, even Satan himself. That doesn't happen until the great white throne judgment at the end of the hundred years. In verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his seat, and the last enemy will be abolished as death. So what it's saying here is there's two resurrections. You've got the first fruits, that's us, first resurrection, and then you've got a second time period, verse 24. That second time period is the second resurrection, and again, verse 24 is another evaporation, another, just like verse 23 was evaporation, verse 24 
sums it up, goes all the way from the end of the thousand years until the lake of fire, as if it was one day and it's not. So verse 24 goes all the way from the end of the thousand years, which is when the second resurrection occurs, and all through the 100 years and the white throne judgment and the lake of fire. And at the lake of fire is when all power and all authority is put under Jesus' feet and the Father and Jesus becomes whole again, reemerges back into one uh, image, one presentation, one role of himself. So a lot of people read these verses right here and say that it all happens in one day. All of this, every bit of it. But then you have to ignore entire chapters of the Bible. And we shouldn't ignore entire chapters of the Bible. So we have to understand these verses are summation. These are liberations. Summing it all up in two simple verses here. Now, the main point is verse 23, each in his own order. That there is an order to the resurrections. Now let's go over to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14 is talking about the 144,000. Now, there's going to be more than 144,000 to be risen in the first resurrection because remember, in another chapter, it said there'll be a, even a great multitude that no one would can number of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. But this chapter focuses in on the 144,000. Look at verse 4. Chapter 14, verse 4 of Revelation. These are the ones, the 144,000, are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste, meaning virgins. This is literal. This is not symbolism here. This is a literal 144,000 males who are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, which means... They follow God. They follow Jesus. And wherever Jesus tells them to go, they go. They are end-time evangelists who are so committed to Jesus Christ, they have no time for marriage. They have no time for relationships. They have no time for girlfriends and dating. They have no time for all that stuff. They have no time for normal life. They are totally committed to Jesus Christ. And these have been purchased, bought by the blood of the Lamb, Purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So they're going to rise in the first resurrection as well as others. There's going to be some women to rise too. But this is specific about 144,000 virgins who have totally dedicated themselves to God. And verse 5 that no lie was found in their mouth, they were blameless. So they have found. A, they have attained. Now, they might have done, I'm sure, yeah, they absolutely have sinned at some time in their life. When there was a child, they might have stowed something or something because all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But they have dedicated themselves and made a vow to the Lord that they would be virgins. And they have attained blamelessness that they do eventually become without sin at some point by this time. And, but notice that they are first fruits. They're going to rise in the first resurrection. Now, if there is first fruits, then there is also secondary fruits, right? If there is first fruits, then there is also second fruits. Now look at chapter 20. And chapter 20 is the main chapter talking about the second resurrection. You can never leave out Revelation 20 when you're talking about the second resurrection. It also talks about the first, but this is one of the main places to teach about the second resurrection. So now we read chapter 19 last week. Chapter 19 talks about the 45 days that we're in heaven, actually 41 and a half days that we're in heaven. We come down at the day of the battle of Armageddon, and then in chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss, called bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, which is the devil Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Then he threw him into the abyss and shut it, sealed it, and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until, until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So why is Satan released to deceive again? Because it says he would deceive the nations any longer until, which means he will deceive again. Now, he's not going to deceive the first fruits because the first fruits have already been harvested at the first resurrection 45 days before this. So he is going to deceive the laws, not the first fruits. So the laws would be all of everybody that did not rise in the first resurrection. Verse 4. Then John sees something else. I, John, saw thrones and they that sat on them. And judgment was given to them, which means power to judge. Authority uh, was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, which means they lived in the Great Tribulation. They were beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast, Assad, or his image, whatever that may mean, and had not received the mark on their forehead and their hand, which means Islam. And they came to life, going back, it's going back in time, 45 days, that they came to life and reigned with Christ for the thousand years. So they, they don't rise after Satan is bound. They rise before Satan is bound. 
These people are in Revelation 19 praising God, worshiping God, receiving their white robes, coming down, coming down at the battle of Armageddon. But they came to life at that seventh trumpet, and they reign with Christ for that thousand years, for that thousand years that Satan is bound. And verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life, did not rise in the first resurrection until the thousand years were completed. That word until means they will eventually rise at the end of the thousand years, until the thousand years were completed. Now the word rest there, verse 5, the rest means everybody. It doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean only those that never heard the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean only those that didn't have a chance before. It doesn't mean only those of anything. It means the rest. The rest means the rest. It's very, very easy. You don't have to make it complicated on this verse. It means everybody that did not rise in the first. Everybody, without exception. So if I give you five rocks and I tell you, give me two, and you give me two. You got three left in your hand. Then I say, okay, give me the rest. When you give me all three, you wouldn't just give me one. You wouldn't just give me two. You'd give me all three if I say, give me the rest of them. So this is everybody that did not rise in the first resurrection, that they did not come to life until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection talking about those that had been beheaded, they came to life, they reigned for the thousand years. So when it says this is the first resurrection, it's not saying those that come back to life after the thousand years, right? But rather it's, it's referring back to those that had been beheaded and had risen at the seventh trumpet and lived for the thousand years. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the ones who had part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Why? Because they're the first fruits. They've already risen at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, and they can't die anymore. They've already been turned to eternal spirit. And they, not, and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for that thousand years. Really, they're going to reign with Christ forever. But it divides it up into a thousand years because it's a major event coming at the end of the thousand years. So verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. That's his purpose, to deceive the nations. The word nations means a lot of people, right? It's not one nation. It's more than one nation. There's a lot of people that rise in that second resurrection. And to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So it's not just in one corner of the earth, not just in two corners of the earth, not just in three corners of the earth, but in all four corners. When it says four corners, it's talking about north, south, west, east. It's not saying that the earth is flat. It's not saying that the earth has actual little corners. It's referring to the four directions, to the north, west, east, south. So these are nations all over the earth, lots and lots and lots of people. These are nations in the north, 
These are nations in the south. These are nations in the west. These are nations in the east. All over the earth. Deceiving masses of people again. But now Jesus is still on the earth. And so are the first fruits. But these people who rise in the second direction, they have a choice to make. They can listen to Jesus and the people of the first fruits, or they can listen to Satan and to other people who just rose with them in the second resurrection. And it says Gog and Magog. Don't let this confuse you because Ezekiel 38, where it says Gog and Magog, talking about Russia and China, in Ezekiel 38, it's specific to Russia and China. But in this verse, it's not specific to Russia and China. So it's kind of confusing there. For one thing, Russia and China is not in the West. Amen? So Gog and Magog is is a symbolic language in this particular verse. Just like in another verse, it says uh, in Revelation uh, 11, where it says that the bodies of the two witnesses will lie in the street called Sodom in Egypt. But it's talking about Jerusalem. It says where the Lord was crucified. So sometimes the specific names of locations are used symbolically. Just like in Revelation 11, where it's talking Jerusalem and calls it Egypt. Symbolically. So here is symbolically called Gog and Magog to refer to lost people. To gather them together, Satan gathers the lost people for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Have you ever walked on the beach or beside the lake uh, where there's dirt and dust and sand? Could you count how many grains of sand there is on the beach? Can you count how many grains of dust there is or sand or dirt there is? So this is not just a few people. This is billions of people, billions and billions and billions of people who rose in the second resurrection, who Satan gathers together for war against the saints. Verse 9, and they came up, this is at the end of the hundred years now, and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, what he's talking about here is not the first fruits, because you can't surround the first fruits. You know, this is a physical flesh and blood army gathering around saints. Who are these saints? These are saints that got saved during the hundred years, because it can't be saints that have already risen, because you cannot surround a saint. You cannot surround a spiritual body of Christ who have already been turned to spirit. So these are flesh and blood saints who got saved. This proves that, that not all these people that got that rose in the second resurrection, not all of them are going to die in the lake of fire. But some of them get saved, and they're called saints now. Out of the blood, blood city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, talking about the wicked, uh, the people that followed Satan. In verse 12, verse 10, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, the first time, he was just in a bottomless pit. It wasn't burning. But this time, he's thrown into the lake of fire, which is the very presence of God. 
This is not under the earth. This is not on Jupiter or Saturn or under the earth. This is the very presence of God which devours and consumes all wickedness because wickedness cannot exist in God. And brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were also, instead of saying are, also it should be translated were also. Because you can't exist within the lake of fire unless you are righteous. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Is that true? No. That's an extremely poor translation. Extremely poor translation. You have to look what John actually wrote. John did not write the word forever because that's an English word. That's not Greek. That's not Hebrew. That's an English word. So you have to look at what John actually wrote in Greek. And it should be translated, they were tormented until the end of their term, until they perish. Remember the word perpetual means long-term? Well, forever and ever also means until the end of their term, until they perish, until they are destroyed. Because Satan is not going to always exist. How can you have paradise, no pain, no crying, no suffering, no darkness, no wickedness, if the devil still exists, or if the beast still exists, or if a wicked, sinful person still exists? You cannot have paradise if there is a burning hell forever and ever and ever. Now, there's a burning forever and ever because God is the lake of fire and he exists forever and ever, but there's not going to be burning people or burning spirits. They're going to be ceased to exist within his presence. So there will always be a lake of fire because he is the lake of fire. But the wicked will not exist according to Book of Psalms, chapter 37, says that the wicked will consume away into smoke and be no more. The wicked will consume away into smoke and be no more. That's Psalm 37. I'll get you, get you the verse number real quick here so you can write it down. Verse 20. Psalm 37, verse 20, for your study for later. Then going back to the rest of Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. That's why we call it the great white throne judgment. And he who sat on him, it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That's talking about... um, the trees, uh, the houses, the buildings, the structures, the cars, the money, the gold, the silver, everything. But now there's a verse that says that the earth will abide forever. The earth will abide forever. So what's really happening here is that it's completely engulfed in fire, the presence of God 
unhealed, unhindered, unheld back the presence of, you know, we saw him as a man, but now we're about to see him as he really is. Moses saw a glimpse of just his backside, and even just a glimpse of his backside was so bright, the face of Moses shined. But when this happens here, the earth will be engulfed with fire. And every wicked thing on the earth, including Satan, including the fallen angels, the demons, including every wicked person, and every wicked thing, and every wicked book, will be consumed. This is, you won't be able to see the earth. He didn't see the earth. It fled away because it's engulfed with flames of God. This is so awesome. Verse 12. Now, verse 12 is talking about at the end of the 100 years, verse 11 is too. But verse 12, he sees the dead who rose 100 years earlier standing at the judgment seat of Christ. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So this is at the end of the 100 years. They've had a chance to be deceived or to believe the truth. They're standing at the throne of God, the great white throne judgment. And they're being judged according to what's been written down, what they did. So our sins are written down, recorded in heaven, until our sins are erased by the blood of Jesus. When we get saved, all the sins written down are blotted out and worst away and erased by the blood of Jesus. But if we don't get saved or if we lose our salvation, those sins reappear even if they've already been blotted out, they reappear because salvation does not exist anymore if we lose our salvation. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead. This is going back to the beginning of the 100 years now. This is not another resurrection. This is not a third resurrection. Some people claim this is a third resurrection. The Jehovah Witnesses, I believe, might teach this. I know the World Watchers of God used to teach this that there was three resurrections. That's not biblical. We have to understand the Bible goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This is not a third resurrection because there's nothing in the Scripture that says there will be three. That is very clear that there will be two, very clear. So going back to the beginning of the 100 years, at the end of the 1,000 years, verse 13, Verse 13, at the beginning of the 100 years, the sea gave up the dead. So that's talking about everybody that died on the Titanic, everybody that died in the Bermuda Triangle, everybody that died in the, the wars that's been fought at, in the oceans. The sea gave up the dead, which were in it, and death and Hades, which is the grave. So that should be translated as the grave. King James has the word hell there. So Hades is a better translation 
But an even better translation would be the grave, because that's what Hades means, the grave. It has nothing to do with a burning fire. So this is death and the grave gave up the dead at the beginning of the hundred years, the dead that were in them, which shows they're not coming up from a burning fire. They were judged at the end of the hundred years. So again, this is one of those sentences that puts in the time that they rose and also at the end of the hundred years, it sums it all up. At the end of the hundred years, they were judged. Every one of them according to their deeds. And then at the end of the hundred years, verse 14, the death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of the hundred years, verse 14. So here in verse 14, even the grave is thrown into the lake of fire. How is that possible? It's because the entire earth becomes engulfed. That's how the graves are even engulfed into this lake of fire. And it says, uh, even death is thrown into the lake of fire. What does that mean? It means that these people who are dying in this fire, even death is swallowed up, which means they cease to exist. They're not just dead. Even the state of deadhood is removed. They are totally annihilated, as if they never, ever, ever existed. We won't even remember them. It will be as if they never existed. We're not going to be thinking about our lost loved ones. It will be as if they were never born. So verse 14, even death and grave were both thrown into the presence of God, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Notice it says second death. Now, a second death is because there's a second life. You can't have a second death without having a second life. And the death occurs at the lake of fire. Does it say uh, eternity? of living and screaming and being tormented? No, it's death. And Babylon says, well, death means just separation from God. No, death means death. (laughs) Amen? In verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the book whose names are written that they were saved, if their name is not in the book of salvation, the book of life, then those persons are thrown into the lake of fire. Now we're going to go back to chapter 21 in a few minutes here and finish reading. But let's learn how long is this second life. If you look at verse 3 here, it says Satan is lit out for a short time. A short time is comparative to the thousand years. So we know it's going to be shorter than a thousand years. So let's prove we're talking about 100 years. To do that, you got to go back to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. 
Verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17. 65, verse 20, verse 17. Verse 17. For behold, I create, or will create, new heavens and new earth. After that lake of fire. That's very, very clear. I mean, this ain't talking about something that's already happened. This is a prophecy of new, new Jerusalem, paradise, new heaven, new earth. This is meaning after that lake of fire finished destroying the wicked, we'll start being able to see the remodeled earth. It's actually going to be a remodeled earth. And it says the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. We're not going to remember our lost ones that die in the lake of fire. We're not going to remember the pain that we used to endure. The former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. We're only going to be happy, happy for the rest of our lives. Yeah, amen. Let's take that. Verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever, fiesta forever. Forever, 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 fiesta, forever. Be glad and rejoice. See, today we celebrate for eight days, but then we're going to celebrate forever in what I create, the new creation of new, newly remodeled heavens and earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God himself, Jesus, will also be happy. Because right now, he gets mad. He gets frustrated. He gets sad. But even God himself and we both will be happy in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Amen. Amen. And they were no longer be heard in my people the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. We know the book of Revelation says this, and be no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Verse 20. No longer will there be an infant who lives but only a few days or an old man uh, who does not live out his days, for the youth will die no, wait a minute here. Death? There's not going to be death in the new heavens, new earth. So now, verse 20 backs up. Because verse 20 cannot, cannot be talking about new heaven, new earth. Because there's going to be no such thing as death, right? In new heaven, new earth. So we know verse 20 backs up. Remember, the Bible backs back and forth, back and forth. So verse 20 backs up in a day and a time when there is still death, right? That's very clear. That's easy, right? So verse 20 backs up to the time period just before New Heaven, New Earth, because the context is paradise. But this verse 20 is just before paradise. 
So it's very clear in the context that it's talking about the short time that Satan is led out to deceive the nations again. The sh- what Revelation said, short time. So this identifies that short time as being 100 years. So reading about that short time, that time frame, how long people would live after the second resurrection, it says in verse 20, no longer will there be an infant who lives only a few days. So that means during that 100 years, nobody will die during that 100 years. Only until you get to the end of the 100 years when they're thrown in the lake of fire. So there won't be babies that die when they're two days old, one day old, or a few seconds old. There won't be any abortion. There won't be anybody that died when they're only five years old or four years old. Because it says there will no longer be an infant who lives but only a few days. No crib death, no childhood death. Then the next line says, or even an old man who does not live out his days. So even if a person is 80, he will not die. 90, he will not die. 99, he will not die. Because the next line says, but the youth would die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the 100 will be thought accursed. The one who does not reach. Now that is a whole very, 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 very poor translation because even the old man, see, it contradicts itself the way it's translated in New American Standard, so we got to go to King James and look at this in a minute because it says the old man does not, there will no, no, no longer be a such thing as an infant who does not live out his days or an old man who does not live out his days. So even the old man will live out this hundred years. Both of them will live out a hundred years. That's the phone telling that we got a message. So let us know that. So we've got to look at King James Version. Because King James gets some verses right. New American gets some things right. NIV gets some, some things right. And so that's why we need an Alpha and Omega Bible, because we'll get the correct translation instead of going, well, let's go to this Bible and this Bible and this Bible. So if I look at King James for this verse, it says, there would be no more than an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child should die a hundred years old, but the sinner... Being a hundred years old should be accursed. So they both live to be a hundred, both the child and the old man sinner. They both live to be a hundred years old. Nobody's going to live less than a hundred. Now, am I choosing the translation that I prefer? No, because I actually went and looked at what Strong's for Corinth says what was written. And if you look at each word, every word in that verse to see what was written, to see which translation to translate it correct, then it shows that the King James actually gets that verse right. So it's not picking and choosing. It's going by 
Strong's Concordance, which is a book that tells you every word in the Bible and what was written. Okay? So this, now, can this be talking about Moses' time? No, because babies did die during the time of Moses, less than 100 years, right? Uh, what about Adam and Eve's time? Not really, because uh, well, Cain didn't live to be 100 years. Abel didn't. Whoever the one that died, Abel, didn't live to be 100, that, that far as we know. So there's never been a time in all of human history, even though some people did live to be a 1,000, there's never been a time when every person on earth, actually every person on earth, like it's talking here. So this has not been fulfilled yet. This is in the future. Plus the context is paradise. So to get to paradise, those that are lost have to go through that 100 years. Now, the reason there ain't going to be nobody that die less than 100 is this is their last chance. Last chance. And so they can't even commit suicide. They can't even die in a car wreck. They can't even die of cancer. Jesus is going to be here on earth. And it will be God's reign, God's government, but the people are still flesh and blood and they can choose to follow God or Satan. But this is their last chance. Last chance. So God ain't going to give them any excuse. They're not going to have the excuses that they use today. Well, he died young, she died young, whatever. There will be no excuse. So every person has to get that amount of time. So there would be no excuse. Um, now, let's look at a chapter that shows us it's going to be a flesh and blood resurrection. Let's look at Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 
verse 1. The hand of G was upon me, and he brought me out by the spirit of G and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. So these are old bones, lots and lots of old bones. And he said to me, son of man, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord, gee, you know. Verse 4, again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of gee. And thus saith the Lord G to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life, to be resurrected. I will put segments on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am G. Ain't that wild? Has anybody ever read that to you before? This is a flesh and blood resurrection of lots and lots of people. Old, old, aging bones that were dead even before Ezekiel. Very old, aging people. Verse 7. So I prophesied, and I was commanded, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone upon bone. And I looked, and behold, segments, which is what hold your bones together, were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath or to the air, thus saith the Lord G, come from the four winds the four corners of the earth, north, south, west, east. O breath, O air, and breathe on these slain that they come to life, be resurrected. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath of air came into them, and they came to life, they were resurrected, and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house, not part, not a minority, but the whole house of Israel, which means not just the Jews, but Manasseh, the United States, Ephraim, England, Canada, South Africa, all the Israelite nations. But this ain't going to be just the Israelites. It's going to be Gentiles, too. But he's speaking a lot of times in the Bible to the Israelites. And it says, the whole house of Israel, the whole day, say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Now, these people are dead. They're not actually speaking. This is prophetic language. This is symbolism. He's saying these people are dead, they're asleep, they really have no hope of life. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord Jesus, Because, behold, I will open your graves, 
Remember, Revelation says they will come up from the grave and from the sea. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am G, when I have opened your graves and have caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and I will come, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your land. Then you will know that I am G, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now the word of the G came to me again, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it. Write these words. For Judah and for the sons of Israel and his companions. So not just the Israelites, but also his companions. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel and his companions. I believe that could probably be translated and his allies, his friends, his people that uh, stand by his side. Verse 17. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Then the sons of your people speak to you saying, when the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus say of the Lord God, Gee, behold, I would take the stick of Joseph, the forefather of America and forefather of England, which is the hand of Ephraim, England, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, the stick of Judah, the Jews, and make them one stick, and they'll be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write, will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, thus saith the Lord, Gee, behold, I will take the sons of Israel. Sons of Israel means their descendants from among the nations where they have gone. Remember, we'll be uh, taking to China, Iran, and other nations during the captivity and invasion. And wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, north, south, west, east, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land of the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them, and there will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. As has ever happened before, no. Now, the Jews claim, and Babylon claimed, that this was fulfilled with the regathering of the Jews back to the Holy Land, back to the nation of Israel that we have now. They say this is the fulfillment. I don't think so. I think that what we're seeing with the Jews all over the earth, that going back to Israel, is a foreshadowing of this, but not the fulfillment. This is a resurrection from the ground, from the bones, from the dead. This is a resurrection. This is the second resurrection. It's not referring to the first resurrection because we're not going to have bones in heaven. We're not going to have bones when we're being turned into spirit. We're going to be given spiritual bodies. This is talking about the second resurrection when they're going to be gathered from everywhere they had been killed during the Holocaust and during World War III, 
They gave him physical bodies so they can have a choice to get saved, learn about Jesus Christ, know what his name is, and and be cleansed. They need to be cleansed. So these are not saints yet, but they're going to be cleansed during that hundred years. So, I mean, it's really clear, I think, that this is the second resurrection that it's talking about. So God is going to restore his people. And he's going to restore some of them during the great tribulation and the wrath and the millennium. But then there's going to be a last chance. And for that last chance to occur, you've got to have the resurrection of the dead. And he's not willing for any man to perish, but for all to have everlasting life. Now let's look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Now, verse 31 is going to be another one of those verses that kind of just cuts a whole lot. In, in, in like just two or three sentences. Uh, verse 31 to 33 is going to put all the way from the day Jesus comes all the way to the great white throne judgment. That's a thousand and one hundred years summed up in three verses. From the day Jesus comes until the great white throne judgment at the end of the hundred. 1,100 years, all summed up in three verses. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes at the day of the battle of Armageddon, in his glory and all the angels with him, then, eventually, he will sit on his glorious throne, and eventually, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate, at the great, great white throne judgment, he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand, at the great white throne judgment, at the end of the hundred years, and the goats on the left. The sheep represents those that get saved during the 100 years, and the goats are those that follow Satan during those 100 years and get deceived again. This is not talking about sheep and goats that are living right now. I mean, they might be living right now, but it's referring to the end of the 100 years. Verse 34. Then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right, to those that get saved during the hundred years, he says, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. 
I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king, Jesus, will answer and say to them, Truly, and the Greek word there is amen, amen, I say to you. It's not really Greek, it's uh, Hebrew. The word amen is a real, true Hebrew word. Amen, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine or companions of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, accused ones, accursed ones, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. And it is eternal because it's him and he is eternal, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, meaning that even the devil and his angels will be thrown in and that he don't want mankind to go there, you know, as far as death judgment goes. Verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then, they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Amen. I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, which is not the same as in eternal punishing. Not the same. It's eternal punishment, meaning forever they will be dead. That's internal punishment. It is not it is not eternal punishing. But the righteous into eternal life. Now, how can the eternal punishment be life in hell? When it's the righteous who receive the life. You can't have both. Like, what is it, Romans 6.23 that says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So you don't get both gifts for being wicked. You only get the death part, not the eternal life part. They're opposite. You don't get two gifts if you're wicked. So this is the great white throne judgment. And how do we know it is? How do we know it's not the very day Jesus comes? Babylon says it's the very day Jesus comes. But how do we know that? Well, we know that because the saints are not going to be put on the left and on the right on the day Jesus comes. Because all you got to do is read Revelation 19, Revelation uh, 20. Revelation 11, so on, so on. All the descriptions, even uh, Zechariah 14, all the different chapters that talk about the coming of the Lord. You don't have a separation on the left and on the right on the day Jesus comes. You don't have that until the dead are judged 
when the grave gives up their dead of the lost people. So you have to take the whole Bible. And this proves that some people will be saved during the 100 years, that it is a chance for salvation because some people are put on the right and they receive eternal life. Let's look at chapter 19. While you're turning chapter 19, zip up that camp door since the air is going having services in our tent because it's pulled out today. They first started today. It was hot in this tent. Now it's cold. Are you warm, Joshua? Joshua, are you warm? Jasmine, say your name right. What about Jaina? Are you warm? No, it's cold out there. (laughs) Now, Matthew 19, verse 27. Matthew 19, verse 27. Nineteen twenty-seven. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything. I have surrendered all. Left everything and followed you, talking to Jesus. What then will there be for us? What will be our reward? Verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly, amen, meaning truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What does it mean here? Well, where we just read in Matthew 25, it said when Jesus comes and sits and on his glorious throne, right? It used that same word or comes in his glory, or something like that. So again, when that great white throne judgment happens, at the end of the hundred years, it's saying these twelve disciples will be there, and they also will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And remember in Ezekiel 37, we see the whole house of Israel comes to life out of the grave. So I believe that they're going to be like a council of elders and that they will render judgment to some people. And if not at the great white throne judgment, then during the hundred years that they'll be reigning in the government at least. The word regeneration means uh, in a new generation in a different life. A new generation. Another life.
It can also be used for uh, born again because you become a new life, a new creation. But in the context of this verse, it's really referring to the next life. In verse 29, it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But the wicked's not going to inherit eternal life, only those that follow Jesus Christ. Verse 30, But many who are first will be last in the last verse. What does that mean? It means... But many who are in the first generations, the first life, that's not talking about first fruits. That's not talking about first resurrection. But it means those that came in the first generation is in the context of regeneration. So the first people that lived back in the times of uh, Adam and Eve, Samson, Noah, all the people that died in Noah's flood, all the Old Covenant people, all the Old Testament, everybody that lived in Old Testament times, everybody all the way up, even through John the Baptist until after the resurrection, all the, all, anybody that did not get saved under the blood of Jesus, because all the Old Testament people, salvation was not available. Salvation could never be obtained through the blood of goats. Salvation could never be obtained through clean, unclean meats or circuses. Never available. Never available until Jesus died. That was the first time salvation became available to mankind. So many who are first, those that lived in the first life of old covenant times, will be last, meaning the last resurrection. They will be the last risen from the dead. They will rise in the second resurrection. People in the Old Testament times cannot rise in the first resurrection because they did not, for the most part, did not learn about the death of Jesus Christ, even though it was prophesied. They wasn't taught it. They didn't understand it. They didn't embrace it. They didn't take of the cup of wine and bread because only the high priest could take of the offerings that were laid on the altar. Uh, And so only the New Covenant people can be risen in the first resurrection. Now, I believe even Noah, even Moses, will have to rise in the second resurrection because it's not enough to just be obedient. It's not enough to just keep the commandments. Yeah, they are our ancestors that lived in the Old Testament times. They cannot rise in the first resurrection. And then the last part of this sentence, it says, and the last first. So the last would be our day and time. Any words from the time that Jesus walked on earth and he died for our sins, anybody that's lived since the birth and death of Jesus Christ, we are the last generation except for, of course, the 100 years. 
the last people living in the end times will rise in the first resurrection because we know about the blood of Jesus. We've been taught it from childhood. So we have learned enough. The people in the Old Testament, they just only received the milk. All of the statues and ordinances and clean, unclean meats and circumcision, that was all milk. We're getting them the meat of the Word of God in the New Covenant time. So we, we can be mature enough by the time Jesus comes back. They cannot. It's impossible for the Old Testament. Even Moses and Noah, they knew what they knew, what they were taught, but they didn't know what we know. They didn't know what Paul knew. And the transfiguration where uh, Peter and the other two saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah was a vision. There's a mosquito in here, so I've got to swap it next time I see where it's at. Okay. But that was a vision of transfiguration. <laughs> All right. I think I got a mosquito. Thanks for praying for us. <laughs> okay. But the transfiguration was a vision of when Jesus and Moses and Elijah will all be standing in the glory of the kingdom, paradise, new heaven, new earth. That was not a vision of the first resurrection. And uh, Moses and Elijah was not actually literally there with Jesus and, and Peter. It was a vision. It says so. It says, Jesus said, tell no man of this vision. And when you look at that Greek word for vision, every time that same Greek word is used, it's truly talking about a vision, not just somebody seeing something. So then chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1, in the context, of old covenant people rising in the second resurrection and new covenant people rising in the first resurrection, staying with the context, chapter 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, the uh, symbolism of harvesting food, a vineyard. Verse 2, when he had agreed with the laborers for a dadaris, which is just a form of money. We could say, I think King James has a penny for the day. He sent them into the vineyard. So those are the first ones that were hired. This is like Abel. He was one of the first ones hired. He went into the vineyard. He gave acceptable sacrifices to God. Abel did. He was one of the first ones hired for the day. He was hired for a penny. Verse 3, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace in the world. And in those he, to those he said, You also go in, into the vineyards. I'm sending you too. I'm calling you too. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour. Each one of these hours, as it progressed to a later hour, means like another thousand years or another millennium or another 6,000 or whatever, much later as time evolves throughout human history. So the first hour could
could be like Abel. The next hour could be like Noah. The next hour could be like Moses. The next hour could be like uh, whoever lives after that. So verse 5, again he went out the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, now when we think of eleventh hour, think about where Matthew 25 says, at the midnight hour the groom came. So the midnight hour is like the coming of the Lord. So it's the eleventh hour in verse 6. It's talking about getting closer to the end time. Getting closer, it's getting closer, it's getting closer. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Now, Notice here it had been counting down time, but now evening comes, which is basically another way of saying the midnight hour. Uh, basically, it's dark. Uh, you've been working out in the field all day long from sunrise to sunset. Now it's time to go home. Now it's time the bell rings. It's the end of the day. The sun has set. And evening came, the owner of the vineyard, which is Jesus. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Remember, the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. Pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. Huh. Beginning with the last group first. Those that had just recently been hired. Those who had just recently been brought into working in the field, learning about Jesus, teaching about Jesus, evangelizing about Jesus. Those had just got saved in the last, in, in the great tribulation, or even in our day and time right now. And they get paid first. We rise in the first resurrection. Verse 9. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a darius, a penny, the same amount of pay. Verse 10. When those hired first came in Abel's time, they thought that they should receive more. Now, I guarantee you they're going to have that attitude. <laughs> they're going to have that attitude. Uh, they thought they should receive more. But each of them also received a darius, the same pay. So we all inherit the same eternal life. It's the same pay. We all receive the same wages. We all receive eternal life. Rather, we got saved uh, in the first resurrection or the second resurrection. Rather, we rise or get paid in the first resurrection or second resurrection. Verse 11. When they received it, the first ones in Old Testament time, when they finally received their reward, they grumbled at the landowner, Jesus, saying, these last men have worked only one hour in the history of mankind, and you have made them equal to us who have bore the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the Darius, a penny? 
Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. You know, we're going to have to give our lives, some of us, just like they did. You know, in verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own, my own people? Or is your eye envious or uh, jealous because I am generous? So the last generations will be first resurrection, and the first generations will be risen in the last resurrection. So that verse 16 uh, relates to chapter 19, verse 30. <clears throat> chapter 19, verse 30. So everything between chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 16, is all in the same context of the reward and the resurrections, the regeneration, the next life, and so forth. So again, this proves two resurrections. This proves two resurrections. And it also proves that we all don't rise at the same time, but each in his own order. It also proves that people who could not get saved in Old Testament times will be given a chance and will have another life and will rise in a resurrection and can receive the same faith eventually. Let's look at one more place. The book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Over there, close to the book of Revelation, 2 Peter, chapter 3. Two Peter, chapter three, verse eight. Two Peter, chapter three, verse eight. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. In other words, time is limitless, limitless, because He is the eternal. And a thousand years is like one day. Again, it just means that he has always existed, always will exist. So time is like nothing to him. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why he wants everybody to do, everybody, regardless of the generation, regardless of what time they were hired. He's not willing for any man to perish, for anyone to perish. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord, great tribulation and the coming of Jesus Christ will come like a thief. But if you compare that to other verses, it really means to the wicked, he comes like a thief. He's not coming like a thief to the saved. It even says that, that he does not come like a thief to us in another verse. But to the wicked, to the lost, he will come like a thief. 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with the intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, Babylon reads that and says, on the very day Jesus comes back, the whole earth is going to be on fire. No. Again, this is a summary of all 1,100 years after Jesus comes back. We know the earth is not going to come to the lake of fire on the very day Jesus comes back because you've got to go through the millennium. You've got to go through the 100 years. You've got to go through all that. Then at the end of 100 years, then comes the lake of fire when death and the grave will be thrown into the lake of fire. So we can't ignore Revelation 21 or Revelation 20. Yeah, Revelation 20. So we have to take all the Bible so that we can understand this. This is a summary of 1,100 years. Then verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed, talking about the sky, the moon, the planets will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Well, that ain't going to have, happen when Jesus comes. That don't happen until after the great white throne judgment, after the wicked are judged and uh, be given their sentence. Then the wages of sin will come. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens, newly remodeled heavens and a newly remodeled earth in which righteousness dwells or tabernacles. We're looking for that. Notice in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. I think we should pray for the end of the wickedness. Amen. And for righteousness to come. Pray for the kingdom of God to come, hastening the day of his arrival. Verse 14. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace and spotless and blameless. So we're not to be found with sin when he comes. He's coming back, Ephesians says, for a church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. Verse 15 here says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Remember, the holy days picture his salvational plan. And so he has patience that if it takes two resurrections, then so be it. If it takes all this life, plus the great tribulation, plus the wrath, plus a hundred years, he is patient. His arm is stretched out all day long to rebellious and stubborn people. And Peter knew this more than anyone else because Peter was very uh, rebellious. The Lord rebuked him to his face. Uh, Paul rebuked him to his face. Peter denied Christ not just three times, but nine times. So Paul knew the long-suffering and patience of the Lord. Verse 15, in regard to the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, 
as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, amen, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from their, from your own steadfastness. Amen. We are to be on our guard, not tossed back and forth with every wind of doctrine and what they say and these people say and those people say and this people say and that website says and that website says and that website says, but reading the scriptures. Reading the scriptures. Amen. And verse 18 but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Meaning faithful and true are these words. Amen. Praise God. So I believe that that's a very appropriate message for the seventh day. Last day, it's not the last great day, but the seventh day, of the fiesta of tabernacles because it don't just represent the millennium but it represents the fall harvest the autumn harvest the last harvest the ingathering of souls of a great multitude of people to gave, be given their last opportunity and the rest of the dead live not again until a thousand years were finished. So they will live again, bone upon bone, segment upon segment, new flesh will be given to them. Very, very clear. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to meet us back here tomorrow at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and we will be celebrating tomorrow the last great day, which pictures paradise, the finish line. Amen. All this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.